0: Page 74, Joseph, somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean, 1939, eight days from home. Finally, Shabbos arrived. It was the day Joseph would leave his childhood behind and become a man, and he could hardly contain his excitement. The ship's bulletin board announced that the first class social hall would be converted into a synagogue, a Jewish house of prayer, which meant Joseph might have his bar mitzvah after all. He was careful not to show his eagerness in front of his father, however. What once what would once have been a happy occasion in the Landau home was now fraught with anxiety thanks to his father's paranoia. A synagogue on board the ship, Papa said. He shook his head as he paced their little room in his oversight night clothes. The captain himself has arranged it, Mama said. Ridiculous. Didn't no one else ever see the Nazi flag flying overhead as we came on board? Will you not go to your own son's bar mitzvah then? Joseph's mother and Ruthie were already dressed in their nice Shabbos dresses. Joseph wore his best shirt and tie. Bar mitzvah? There won't be enough men to form a minion, Papa said. By tradition, ten or more Jewish men, a minion was needed for a public service. No, no one who has lived in Germany for the past six years would be so foolish as to go to a Jewish service aboard a Nazi ship. Papa ran a hand over his shaved head. No, it's a trap, meant to lure us out. That's when they'll snatch us, a trap. Mama sighed. All right then, we'll go without you. They left him pacing the room, muttering to himself. Joseph felt like someone had yanked his heart from his chest. In all the times he'd dreamed of this day, his father had always been there to recite a blessing with him. But maybe this was... What becoming a man is, Joseph thought. Maybe becoming a man means not relying on your father anymore. Joseph and his mother and Ruthie stopped short just inside their first class social hall. There weren't the required ten men for the service. There were a hundred men, probably more, all wearing yarmulkes in their heads and, and white and black talisman prayer shawls around their shoulders. The card tables had been pushed to the sides of the room and the stewards were adding more chairs to accommodate the crowd. A table at the front held the Torah scroll. Joseph stood and stared. It felt like ages since it had been in, he'd been inside a synagogue. It had been before Kristallnacht, before Nuremberg laws, and made Jews second-class citizens, before the boycotts and the book burnings, before Jews were scared to gather together in public places. Joseph's parents had taken him to a synagogue with them on Shabbos, even when other parents left their children with their nannies. It all came flooding back to him now, swaying and humming along with the prayers, craning his neck to see the Torah when it's taken out of the ark and hoping to get a chance to touch it and kiss his fingers as the scroll came around in a procession. Joseph felt his skin tingle. The Nazis had taken all this from him, and now he and the passengers on the ship were taking it back. Gustav Schroeder, the ship's diminutive captain, was there to greet them at the door. In the gallery above the room, a number of the off-duty crew had gathered to watch. Captain asked a rabbi, one of the men who was leading the service. I wonder if we might take down the portrait of the Fuhrer, given the circumstances. It seems inappropriate for such a secret moment to be celebrated in the presence of Hitler." Joseph had seen the painting of the Nazi leader all over the ship, and the first-class social hall was no exception. A large portrait of Hitler hung in the middle of the room, watching over them, and Joseph's veins ran with ice. He hated that man, hated him because of everything he'd done to the Jews, but mostly because of what Hitler had done to his father. Of course, Captain Schroeder said, he quickly called over two of the stewards, and as soon as they had the portrait down and were taking it from the room. In the gallery above, Joseph saw one of the crew slam a fist down on the railing and storm off. Page 77. Joseph's mother gave him a kiss on the cheek, and she and Ruthie went to sit in the section reserved for the women. Joseph took a seat in the section with the men. The rabbi stood in front of the crowd and read from Hosea. That it was time for Joseph to recite the blessing he had been practicing for weeks. There were butterflies in his stomach as he got up in front of such a large audience, and his voice broke as he stumbled through the Hebrew words. But he did it. He found his mother in the crowd. Her eyes were wet with tears. Today, Joseph said, I am a man. There were many hands to shake and many congratulations after the ceremony, but it was all a blur to Joseph. He felt like he was walking in a dream. For as long as he could remember, he wanted to do this, to no longer be a child, to be an adult. Joseph's mother and sister left to go to the back to visit his father in the cabin. Joseph walked the promenade deck by himself, a new man. Renata and Evelyn jumped out from behind a lifeboat and grabbed Joseph by the hand. Without their parents on the ship, they had skipped synagogue to play. "'Joseph, come stand guard for us,' Renata cried. Before he could protest, the girls dragged him to the women's restroom. He was afraid they were going to pull him inside, but instead they deposited him by the door. "'Yell if you see someone coming,' Renata said breathlessly. "'We're going to latch all the stalls from the inside and crawl out under the door so no one can use the toilets.' "'No, don't,' Joseph cried, tried to tell them, but they were already gone.' He stood there awkwardly, not sure if he should stay or go. Soon the sisters ran back outside, hanging on to each other with laughter. The young woman staggered past them, clutching her stomach and looking green. Renata and Evelyn got quite quiet, and Joseph could hear the woman desperately rattling the stall doors, looking for a toilet. The woman lurched out of the bathroom, looking even more green and desperate, and wobbled away. Renata and Evelyn burst into laughter. Joseph raised himself up. This isn't funny. Go in there and unlock those doors this minute. Just because you had your bar mitzvah doesn't make you an adult, Renata told him. And Evelyn struck her, stuck her tongue out at him. Come on, Ev- Evie, let's do the bathrooms on a deck. The girls tore away and Joseph huffed. They were right. A bar mitzvah alone didn't make him an adult. Being responsible did. He walked on along the promenade looking for a steward he could tell about the bathroom stalls. He saw two stewards who had stopped to look over the side of the sea and came up behind them. Must be doing sixteen knots easy, said one of the stewards. Captain's got the engines maxed out. Has to, the other said. The other two ships is smaller and faster. They get to Cuba first and unload their passengers. And who knows? Cuba might decide that she's full up with Jews when we get there and turn us away. Joseph looked out to sea. There wasn't another ship on the horizon as far as he could see. What other ships were they talking about? More ships full of refugees? And why did it matter which one got there first? Hadn't everyone on board already applied and paid for the visas? Cuba couldn't turn them away. Could they? One of the stewards shook his head. There's something they're not telling us. The shipping company. Something they're not telling Schroeder. The captain's in a tight spot, he is, wouldn't want to be him for all the sugar in Cuba. Joseph backed away. He'd already forgotten about the stalls in the woman's bathroom. If he and his family didn't make it to Cuba, if they weren't allowed in, where would they go? Isabel, the Straits of Florida, somewhere north of Cuba, 1994, one day from home. Page 81. Senora Castillo was in charge of the boat. No one had voted or named him captain, but he built the boat after all, and he was the one at the rudder, steering it so that put him in charge. He didn't look happy about it, though. He kept frowning at the motor and the rudder like there was something wrong. But besides a quick patch job of stuffing a sock into a bullet hole, everything was good. The lights of Havana had faded to a speck on the horizon behind them, and they had left all the other boats behind. Isabel clung to the wooden bench she sat on, squeezed in between Ivan and her grandfather. Their boat was barely big enough for seven people, and with Luis and his girlfriend, they were practically sitting on top of each other. I think it's time we met the other person on board with us, Isabel's grandfather said. Isabel thought he meant Luis's girlfriend, but instead he pushed some of the snacks snacks of food and jugs of water out of the way and pointed at the bottom of the boat. Page 82. Staring back up at them was a huge face of Fidel Castro. Luis's girlfriend gasped and then suddenly exploded with laughter. Soon all of them were laughing with her. Isabel laughed so hard her stomach hurt. Even grumpy Senor Castillo chuckled. I needed something big and thick for the bottom of the boat, he said. And seeing as to where so many signs around with El Presidente's head on them. It was true. Castro's face was everywhere in Cuba. On billboards, on taxis, and picture frames... On schoolroom walls, painted on the sides of buildings, underneath this painting were the words, fight against the impossible and win. Well, Fidel is thick-headed, Luis said. Isabel put her hands to her mouth, but couldn't help laughing again with everyone else. You weren't allowed to say things like that in Cuba, but they weren't in Cuba anymore, were they? Do you know... What the greatest achievements in the Cuban Revolution are, Isabel's father asked, education, public health, and sports. They all said together. It was a constant refrain in Castro's lengthy speeches. And do you know what the greatest failures are, he asked. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, the adults answered, back as though they had heard that one many times before, too. Isabel smiled. That prompted someone to break out food and drinks, even though it was late. Isabel sipped from a bottle of soda "'How long will it take to get to Florida?' she asked. "'Señor Castillo shrugged. "'By tomorrow night, maybe. "'Tomorrow morning we'll have the the sun to guide us.' "'All that matters now is that we get as far away from Cuba as we can,' said Luisa's girlfriend. "'And what's your name, pretty one?' Lito asked her. "'Amara,' she said. "'She was very pretty, even in her blue police uniform. "'She had flawless olive skin, long black hair, and full red lips. "'No, no, no,' Lito said.' He fanned his face. Your name must be Summer because you're making me sweat. The girl smiled, but Isabel's mother slapped Leto on the leg. Poppy, stop it. You're old enough to be her grandfather. Leto just took that as a challenge. He put his hands over his heart. I wish I was your favorite song, he told Amara, so I could be on your lips forever. If your eyes were the sea, I would drown in them. Leto is giving her piropos the flirtatious compliments cuban men said to women on the street not every one did it anymore but Toledo, it was a like an art form amara laughed and louise smiled maybe we shouldn't talk about drowning papa said clutching to the side of the boat as they chopped into a wave what do you think the states will be like isabel's mother asked everyone isabel had to stop and think about that what would the United States be like? She hadn't had much time to even imagine it. Shelves full of food stores. Shelves full of food at the store, Senora Castillo said. Being able to travel anywhere we want, anytime we want, said Amara. I want to be able to choose who I vote for, Luis said. I want to play baseball for the New York Yankees, Ivan said. I want to go to college first, my, his mother told him. I want to watch American television, Ivan said. The Simpsons. I'm going to open my own law office, Senora Castillo said. Isabel listened as everyone listed more and more things they were looking forward to in the States. Clothes, food, sports, movies, travel, school, opportunity. It all sounded so wonderful. But when it came down to it, all Isabel really wanted was a place where she and her family could be together and happy. What do you think El Norte will be like, Poppy? Isabel asked. Her father looked surprised at that question. No more ministry of telling people what to think or else, he said. No more getting thrown in jail for disagreeing with the government. But what do you want to do when you get there, Senora Castillo asked. He hesitated while everyone stared at him, his eyes searching Castro's face at the bottom of the boat as though there were answers hidden there. Be free, Poppy," said finally. Let's have a song, Leto said. Chabella play us a song on your trumpet. Isabel's chest tightened. She told her parents what she'd done, but not Leto. She knew he would never have let her do it. I traded my trumpet, she confessed, for the gasoline. Her father was shocked. But that trumpet was everything to you. No, not everything, Isabel thought. It wasn't my mother, my father, and you, Leto. I'll get another one in the States, she said. Leto shook his head. Here, let's have a song anyway. He began singing a salsa song and tapping out the rhythm on the side of the metal boat. Soon the whole boat was singing. And Leto stood and held out a hand to Amara, inviting her to dance. Poppy, sit down, you'll fall out of the boat, Isabel's mother told him. I can't fall out of the boat because I have already fallen for this princess of the sea, he said. Amara laughed and took his hand, and the two of them danced as best as they could in the swaying boat. Miami started counting clave by clapping, and Isabel frowned, trying to follow the beat. Still can't hear it, Chabella, Lita asked. Isabel closed her eyes and focused. She could almost hear it, almost, and then the motor sputtered and died, and the music stopped. Mahmoud, kill us turkey... 2015, two days from home, page 87. Mahmoud could hear music beyond the fence. It was hard to see for all the people. He stood in a long line with his family, waiting at the border to gain admission to, into Turkey, near the city of Kilis. Around them were countless more Syrian families, all hoping to be led in. They carried everything they owned with them, sometimes in suitcases and duffel bags, but more often stuffed into pillowcases and trash bags. The men wore jeans and t-shirts and tracksuits. The women wore dresses and uh, abayas and hijabs. Their children looked like miniature versions of them and acted like miniature adults too. There was very little crying and whining and none of the kids were playing. They had all walked too far and seen too much. After leaving the car behind, Mahmoud and his family had followed the map on their phone. Skirting cities held by Desh and the Syrian army and the rebels and the Kurds as best as they could. Google Maps told them it would be an eight-hour walk and they split their journey up by sleeping in a field. It was hot out by day but it got cold again at night and Mahmoud and his family had left all their extra clothes in the car in their haste to escape. The next morning they had seen the people. Dozens of them, hundreds, refugees just like Mahmoud and his family who had left their homes in Syria and were walking north to Turkey to safety. Mahmoud and his family had fallen into step with them and disappeared among their ranks, invisible just as Mahmoud liked it. Together, the shambling throng of refugees was ignored by the American drones and the rebel rocket launchers and the Syrian army tanks and the Russian jets. Mahmoud heard explosions and saw smoke clouds, but no one cared about a few hundred Syrian people leaving the battlefield. And now they were in a line with him, all those hundreds of people and thousands more. They weren't invisible anymore. Turkish guards in the green green camo gear with automatic weapons and white surgical masks over their faces walked up and down the line, staring at each of them in turn. Mahmoud felt like he was in trouble. He wanted to look away, but he was worried. That might make the guards think he was hiding something. But if he looked right at them, they would notice him, maybe pull him and his family out of line. Mahmoud stared straight ahead at his father's back instead. His father's shirt was stained at the armpits, and with a sniff, quick sniff of his own shirt, Mahmoud realized he stank too. They had walked for hours in the hot sun without a bath, without a change of clothes. They looked tired and poor and wretched. If this were a Turkish border guard, he wouldn't have let any of these dirty, squalid people, himself included. Mahmoud's father kept their papers tucked into his pants, under his shirt, along with all of their money. The only other things they own now besides two phones and two chargers. When Mahmoud and his family finally got to the front of the lines late in the day, Mahmoud's father presented their official documents to the border agent. After what seemed like an eternity of looking over their papers, their border guards finally stapled temporary visas in, onto their passports and let them through. They were in Turkey. Mahmoud couldn't believe it. Step after step, kilometer after kilometer, he'd begun to think they would never, ever escape Syria. But as relieved as he was, he knew he still had so very far to go. Ahead of them stretched a small city of white canvas tents. Their pointed tops staggered like white caps on the choppy sea. There were no trees, no shade, no park or football fields or rivers, just a sea of tents and a forest of electric poles and wires. Hey, we're in luck, Mahmoud's dad joke. The circus is in town. Page 90. Mahmoud looked around. There was a main street in the camp, a wide lane where refugees had set up little shops selling phone cards and camp stoves and clothes and other things People had brought with them, no longer wanted or needed. It was like a giant rummage sale, and it seemed like everybody in the camp was there. The path was crammed, full of Syrians, all strolling along like they had nothing else to do and nowhere else to go. All right, Mahmoud's father was saying. A man in the group he walked with gave me the name of a smuggler who can take us from Turkey to Greece. A smuggler? Mom said. Mahmoud didn't like the sound of that either. To him, smuggler meant illegal and illegal meant dangerous. Dad waved their fears away. It's fine. It's what they do. They get people into the EU. The EU, Mahmoud, Mahmoud had no knew, knew, was the European Union. He also knew there was much more strict about letting people in than Turkey was. Once you were in the EU countries though, like Greece or Hungary or Germany, you could apply for asylum and be granted official refugee status. It was getting there that was the hard part. I've been talking with him on the WhatsApp, Dad continued, holding up by holding up his phone. It will be expensive, but we can pay, and we will have to get Izmir on the Turkish coast. Assuming we stop to sleep every night, that's nineteen day walk. Or it's a 12-hour car ride, nonstop. I'll see if I could find us a boat or bus. Mahmoud and his mother and sister and brother walked the shopping street. People called out to one another in Arabic, and music from radios and TVs filled the air. Other children darted in and out among the adults, laughing and chasing each other into the alleys of the tents off the main drag. Mahmoud caught himself smiling. After Aleppo, the near-constant gunfire and explosions punctuated by the oppressive quiet of an entire city trying their hardest not to draw attention to themselves, this place felt alive, even if it was dusty and cramped. Mahmoud saw a cardboard box of used toys at one of the shops and knelt to dig in while his mother and brother and sister walked out. He sifted through it, hoping, yes, a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. It was the one with the red bandana. A box didn't have another Ninja Turtle in it, but Waleed would be excited to get it. Mahmoud hopped on, at least. Waleed didn't seem to get excited about much these days. Mahmoud paid 10 Syrian pounds for it, about 5 cents in American money. A car honked behind Mahmoud, and he turned like everybody else. It was an old blue opal taxi, traveling so slowly Mahmoud could walk faster. It was the only car Mahmoud had seen in the camp, and the crowd parted for it as it drew closer. A Syrian pop song blared from the radio, and young men and women danced and laughed alongside the taxi as it passed. Mahmoud saw a young couple sitting in the back. The woman was dressed in a white satin dress and veil. It was a marriage procession, Mahmoud realized. Back in Syria, it was a tradition to be escorted to your wedding by a parade of cars to help carry you into your new life. Mahmoud remembered his uncle's wedding before the war. His uncle had worn a tuxedo and the bride had worn a dress of sparkling jewels and a tiara, and they had been escorted by a dozen cars to a party where Mahmoud had eaten a piece of the delicious seven-tiered cake and danced with his mother to a real band. Here, the couple's only escort was a group of rowdy teenage boys running behind the taxi, and their destination was a dirty white tent with whatever food they'd been able to buy at the camp's market. But everyone seemed to be having fun. The old taxi exhaust pipe made it sound like a gunshot. Puck! And everybody ducked instinctively. The spell of happiness and safety for a moment broken by the unforgettable memories of the chaos they had just escaped. Mahmoud's heart was still racing when someone put a hand on his shoulder and he jumped. It was his dad. Mahmoud, where's your mother? Where are Walid and Hannah? His father asked. I found us a ride, but we have to leave now. Joseph, somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean, 1939, ten days from home, page 93. Joseph followed the small group of kids through the raised doorway into the bridge of the St. Louis. The bridge was a narrow curving room that stretched from one side of the ship to the other. Bright sunlight streamed in through two dozen windows, offering a panoramic view of the vast blue-green Atlantic and wispy white clouds. Throughout the wood deck room were metal benches with maps and rulers on them, and the walls were dotted with mysterious gauges and meters made of shining brass. There were a number of crewmen on the bridge, some of them wearing blue and white sailor uniforms like the stewards, and three more in brass button blue jackets with gold bands on the cuff and blue officer caps with gold trim. One of the regular sailors stood at a spoked steering wheel the size of a truck tire with handles sticking out around it. It looked like the steering wheels Joseph had seen in paintings of pirate ships, but this one was metal and connected to a big rectangular pedestal. The shortest of the three men in the fancy uniform strode over in the group with a big smile on his face. Joseph recognized him from the Shabbos service. Welcome to the bridge, boys and girls, he said. I'm Captain Schroeder. The captain shook each hand of their hands, and even though none of them was older than 13, one of the parents on board of the ship had arranged a tour for the bridge and engine room for any children who wanted to attend, and eight of them signed up. Ruthie and Evelyn hadn't been interested, but Renata was there, along with a few other older kids. Captain Schroeder introduced them to his first officer and the other crew on the bridge and showed them what some of the gauges and dials meant. Joseph listened eagerly. This is the engine control for the St. Louis, Captain Schroeder explained. When we want to change speed, we grip these handles, slide them all the way forward, and then pull them back to the new setting. He smiled. I'm not going to change the speed now, because we've got the engines set right where we want them. Joseph noticed both handles were set to a head full. We are going full speed because we are racing two other ships to Cuba, Joseph asked. The captain looked surprised and then a little angry. Where did you hear that we were racing other ships to Cuba, asked Joseph. Two stewards were talking about it the other day, Joseph said, feeling a little nervous. They said if we don't make it there first, they might not let us in. The captain pursed his lips and glanced meaningfully at the first officer who looked concerned. The captain turned on his smile again. We're not in any kind of race, he said, looking from Joseph to the other kids. We're just making the best possible speed because we have calm seas and a following wind. You've nothing to worry about. Now perhaps Petty Officer Jockle will show you the engine room. As high up on, as the bridge was the ship, the engine room was just as far down. After stepping through a steel fire door that said crew only painted on it in big letters, Joseph and the tour group went down staircase after staircase and they were still weren't in the engine room yet. Below decks was very different from what Joseph had used to above decks. There was everything on A, B, and C decks, was airy and comfortable. There was no portholes here, no spacious cabins. The air was damp and smelled with cigarettes and cabbage and sweat. Peeking into the rooms, Joseph could see that the crew quarters below decks had two beds to a room and barely enough space to turn around. The hallways were narrow and the ceilings were low. Petty Officer Jockle had to duck as he went through the doorways. Joseph had never been afraid of tight places before, but the living conditions made him uneasy. He felt like he was visiting an alien world. The seven other kids must have felt the same way because they were all silent, even Renata. From down the hall came the sound of men singing, and Petty Officer Jockle showed. As they got closer, Joseph recognized the tune. It was the horse weasel song, the anthem of the Nazi party. Joseph's skin crawled, and he and the other kids looked at each other nervously. Joseph had heard the horse weasel song hundreds of times in the weeks following his father's abduction. It had gone overnight from an obscure song to the Nazis sang at rallies to the unofficial national anthem of Germany. It was frightening. The last time Joseph had heard the song, was the day every one of his neighbors had lined the streets to salute the Nazi soldiers marched by. Petty Officer Jockel tried to slip the children past the little common room where the crewmen were drinking and singing, but suddenly someone in the room called out, Stop! Passengers aren't allowed down here. Jockel froze, and so did Joseph. One of the men got up from the table, a scowl on his face, He was the thickest man with a bulbous nose, bulldog cheeks, and dark, heavy eyebrows. Joseph knew that face from somewhere. Had he been their steward at dinner? Set up their beds one night? No, Joseph remembered. This was the man he had seen at the balcony the morning of the Shabbos service. The man who had been angry that the portrait of Hitler had been taken down and removed. The man staggered a little, bumping into things he tried to move through the tight little room. Joseph had seen drunk people leaving pubs in Berlin the same way. "The captain has given these children special permission to visit the engine room," Schneidick, petty officer Jockel told him. "The captain," Schneidick said, his voice dripping with disapproval, "even from where Joseph stood, he could smell the alcohol on his breath." "Yes," Jockel said, straightening, "the captain on the wall of the common room, Joseph saw a bulletin board with Nazi slogans and headlines from the rabidly anti-Jewish newspaper, Der Stumer, pinned to it. He felt a shiver of fear. Jewish rats, Schneidick said, sneering at Joseph and the other kids. Many of them looked at their shoes, and even Joseph looked away, trying not to draw the big man's attention. Joseph clenched his fists, and his ears burned hot with frustration and embarrassment at his helplessness after a few tense moments Schneidick staggered back to his seat the threat of the captain rank still worth something even so far away from the bridge petty officer Jockel hurried the children along and Schneidick and his friends broke into another nazi song even louder than before joseph heard them sing when jewish blood flows from the knife things will go much better before Jockel ushered them down another flight of stairs Joseph's legs felt weak and he slung to the rail he clung to the railway he thought they had escaped all this on the St. Louis but the hatred had followed them even here to the middle ocean with its huge diesel engines and generators and dials and pumps and switches the engine room should have been fascinating but Joseph had a hard time getting excited about it none of the other children were excited either not after what happened with Schneidick. the tour ended solemnly, and petty officer Jockel returned them to the surface, being careful to take them back by a different route. It was a different world below decks, Joseph thought. The world outside a magic, the magic little bubble he and the other Jews lived in above deck on the MS St. Louis. Here, below deck, was the real world.